0: You're listening to audio from Cities Church. You can find more resources and learn about our ministry by visiting citieschurch.com. Seven chapters of Leviticus, one sermon, who's ready? So be honest, right? You just listened to that. Thank you, Eric. Uh, how many of you are just mystified by the details of what was just read? Just raise your hand. Many mystified. The rest of you are liars. <laughs> My modest goal this morning is to demystify it a little bit. I just want to give you kind of an orientation and some categories for approaching this system that for many of us kind of just runs together. For most of us Christians, you heard there's all these different offerings, right? There was six of them listed there at the end, five of them prominently in these chapters, and yet for us, they all just kind of run together, and we know they meet at Jesus, and we're glad that we don't have to bring our animals to church. But I want us to give us some categories so we can have some depth to what God is saying to us, because this was written for our instruction. So maybe I ask you this question How many of you believe that English is a complicated language? Wow, okay. It's interesting. Most uh, native speakers, native English speakers, don't really have a problem using the language. We're just raised in it, we use it. But if you ever talk to someone who has had to learn English as a second language, they find it very confusing. Many of the spellings, many of the grammatical rules seem to be inconsistent and just all over the map. You, you're uh, familiar with the um, Brian Regan sketch about when he's a kid and he gets to, has the, the spelling bee. You guys know the sketch? Okay, okay, some of you guys remember this? If you didn't, you can go look that one up later on YouTube. In the sketch, he, his teacher asks him, how do you make a plural, Brian? And he says, you, you put an S at the end. And then she says, okay what's the plural for ox? And he gets it wrong, and he says, no, it's oxen. Okay, I'm an idiot, right? And then what's the plural for box? Boxen. (laughs) No, Brian. What's the plural for moose? It's moosen, (laughs) right? And so it's this extended joke about how English makes plurals. And the reason the joke works is because you know the basic rules, and then you also know that there's all of these kind of like odd exceptions that have some kind of logic to them that you don't really understand, but maybe your like sixth grade English teacher told you them one time and expected you to remember them. But you still use them all the time because you're familiar with the language. You've lived in it. Okay, the reason that Leviticus feels complicated to us is because we're unfamiliar with it. We don't have to inhabit it. It is not the warp and woof of our daily lives. It's like a foreign language. And so I want you to think for a minute. In fact, one of the big categories I want you to think about for this whole series is that Leviticus gives us a language. So think about what goes into a language. Like, so in, in a language you have an alphabet, your ABCs, and then you can arrange those letters into words, and there are different kinds of words. You got nouns, and you got verbs, you got adjectives, you got prepositions and adverbs and all of this kind of things. And we can arrange those words into sentences and those sentences have meaning and purpose so that we can communicate. But you have to arrange them in a certain way in order for them to mean something. For example, for them to make sense, like Bill throws the ball, is very different from the ball throws bill. It's important to arrange the words in the right order in order to communicate well, and the sacrificial system is like that. But instead of nouns and verbs and adjectives, we have people and places and sins and animals and animal parts and actions, and all of them are arranged in various ways, overlapping with one another in order to say something to us and for us to say something to God. There's another way that the sacrificial system is like learning a language. Uh, We don't actually, if you think about how you learned English or whatever your native language is, you didn't actually learn your ABCs first. Instead, you learned simple sentences. Okay. Well, like you didn't start with the most basic building block of letters and then work your way up to words and then work your way up to sentences. Instead, you learn sentences, really simple ones like, help please, help please, that's what we teach our kids when they're young, help please, no please, no sir, right, little short sentences. And then we build up from there to more complex sentences, and then once they've got a level of complexity and we can speak, then we go back and we say, A, B, C, D, E, and we teach them, the, we break it down. And as they get more mature, then we break it down more, and we start teaching them the rules of the language as they enter into school. And I just want to say, the Bible teaches us the sacrificial system in the same way. We get glimpses of it early on, so you remember God provided Adam and Eve with animal skins after their sin, when He exiled them from the garden. Or Cain and Abel immediately after that offer a tribute offering to God. Well, later, after the flood, Noah offers whole burnt offerings of clean animals after the flood. So we're getting little glimpses here of the sacrificial system. Then Abraham later offers Isaac, and God substitutes a ram at the last minute, giving us another glimpse about what this system is all about. And then there's offerings and sprinklings of blood at Mount Sinai. And then finally, in Leviticus, it's as though we pick up a grammar textbook that sets forth more detailed rules for how all of this is supposed to work in God's covenantal arrangement that he's established with his people after the Exodus. This is a particular time in history when he's gonna go deeper and fill it out so that they can know what it means. And so with that language paradigm in mind, I just wanna give you some of the basic spelling and grammar rules of the sacrificial system. But in order to do that, can't give you the rules unless you know what God's trying to say. So last week, Pastor Jonathan identified these three major themes of the book of Leviticus. Holy God, sinful people, substitutionary sacrifice. And so I want to build and expand out from those simple sentences to a little more complex sentences. So let's expand it this way. I'm going to start with just two of them. The living God is holy. So I'm connecting there, so it's not just holy God, He's the living and holy God, okay? It's a little expansion. And then second, not only are we sinful people, we are sinful people in a world of death. Okay, so I'm expanding out from last week the simple sentences to from, Uh, Holy God, sinful people, to the living God is holy, and we are sinful people in a world of death. That's the basic contrast that we need to have in our heads. Holy and living on the one side, sin and death on the other. And it's that thing that creates the problem that we're trying to understand. Because that God wants to live with that people in that world. How can that happen? The living and holy God desires to dwell with a sinful people in a world of death. That's the baseline thing that we're trying to understand. The living and holy God wants to live with His sinful people in a world of death. So here's an image for you to try to understand this. I just want you to imagine what it would be like if the sun, S-U-N, giant ball, flaming gas, millions of miles away, if the sun wanted to come live in your house or in your neighborhood, okay, just imagine that the sun said, hey, I'm gonna come live with you. No atmosphere to protect you. No sunscreen to shield you. Just the blazing inferno of the sun and your weak, frail self. How would that work out for you? Can you handle that heat? Get that picture? Okay, perhaps maybe use two more biblical pictures, okay? So um, you remember the scene uh, in Genesis chapter 3, if you reach back in Genesis, Leviticus builds on Genesis a lot. And so after Adam and Eve have rebelled against God, they've called down His judgment, He covers them with animal skins, sends them out of the garden, and do you remember what He placed at the entrance to the garden? You Remember this? There's a cherubim, an angel, Johnny knew. Cherubim, an angel with a flaming sword," say, a sword of fire, okay, going to and fro, guarding the way, where? To the tree of life. Living life, got that? Okay, so the holy presence of God is in the garden. The uh, tree of life, life is in the garden. Life and holiness are in the garden. You're, Adam and Eve are now outside the garden, and there's an angel with a sword on fire keeping you from getting in there. You got that picture? Okay, that's one image. Okay. There's an angelic bouncer between you and holiness and life, and you can't draw near without losing your head and being burned up. That's one image. Now here's the second. It's later, it's a different mountain, Mount Sinai. Yahweh has just delivered His people from bondage. He's gathered them at the holy mountain, and again, the living and holy presence of God is at the top of that mountain, that pillar of cloud and fire and lightning and everything at the top of that mountain. Remember that scene from last time, a few months ago? Okay, so living and holy presence of God at the top of a mountain, and He says to Moses, I have borne you on eagles' wings, and if you obey my voice, voice, you will be my treasured possession, a kingdom of priests and a holy nation." You feel the tension between those two images? Life and glory on the mountain, angel guarding the way so you can't get back. Life and glory on the mountain, you're my people and I want to give you a hug. This is odd. There's a tension. Something has to give because we can't handle that heat. Yahweh's answer to the problem of the living and holy God desiring to dwell and meet with his sinful people in a world of death is Leviticus. That's the solution. It's an entire language and symbolic system that's meant to enable the living and holy God to dwell with His sinful people in a world of death. And at the heart of the system is atonement. That was the third. Substitutionary sacrifice, atonement, or a God-given covering so that you can handle the heat. It's a baseline meaning there. Atonement, we're going to build out other pieces of that, but at a baseline, basic grammar, what's an atonement? Kippur. It's a God-given covering so that you can handle the heat. All right, now let's dive into the grammar. That's the basic, that's what God's trying to say. So what are the basics of Levitical language? So I want you to, I'm actually organized this uh, in terms of grammar, so sorry, you're just gonna have to come back into your sixth grade classroom for a minute. And uh, I want you to think in terms of nouns, adjectives, and verbs, this is, we're going back to basics. So let's start with nouns. You remember when you were—anybody remember the three basic sort of categories of nouns when you were a kid? Probably the kids do. First place thing, right? People, places, and things. That's right. Guess what? Levitical systems has people, places, and things. Let's talk about them. Let's start with people. First, in Leviticus we have men and women, and they're not the same, they're different. There's going to be different laws that orient to men and women differently because men and women are different. But the book opens with this kind of callback to Genesis. It doesn't quite come through in the translation that we just read. But it's literally in in that first or second verse there, when, it says when any of you, it's literally when an Adam brings an offering. Because Adam, as you know, is just the Hebrew word for man or mankind. When an Adam brings an offering. And that reminds us, oh yeah, Adam, who was taken from the Adamah, taken from the dust of the ground, the earth man, the dirt bag, Adam from the dust of the ground. But we're not merely earth men. Later in Leviticus, we'll be talked about in terms of ish and Isha. Those are the Hebrew words for uh, male and female, man and woman, husband and wife. And those words, interesting, so Adam is related to ground and earth. And Ish and Isha are related to another Hebrew word. Again, this is all grammar stuff. The Hebrew is connecting language stuff like this. Ash is the word for fire. So you've got the earth men, and then you've got the men and women that are connected somehow in imagery of fire. Okay, so we're like, okay, well, there's symbols here happening. Okay. So, and in the Levitical system, you can break the people down even more. Like you've got the congregation as a whole. So just think about all of us gathered here. And then within that congregation, you have the Levites or priests. Especially the high priest has a specific role. Beyond that, you don't just have sort of the religious leaders, the priests. You have the uh, civil rulers, the the leaders and rulers of the people. And then you've got the individuals, sort of the commoners in Israel. Some of them are rich, some of them are poor. The Levitical system, though, recognizes all of those distinctions and says those matter. And we're going to do different things with different people. So in this grammar, there are people right persons place and things all right what about places here you have to connect something okay and this is going this is i'm actually going to use the building here again i think i did this before when we did the tabernacle you have to connect sacred geography and sacred architecture geography is about what the, the world god made architecture is the world that we made or that god's people made at god's command in order to reflect the world that god made Okay, so think about geography. You remember, I said Leviticus is built on Genesis, those early chapters, and there you remember that there was a garden in the land of Eden, so a garden inside a land, and then out beyond the land was the world that was unsubdued and unfilled. Got that? There's a garden, in a land, in a world. Does that make sense? The the kind of three levels. Okay, and and it's actually kind of raised because we and we know that because there's a river that's at the top of a mountain that goes down to water the garden and then from the garden goes out to water the ends of the earth and if you know anything about water it runs downhill cool right so start you got high up here fountain runs down waters the garden and then goes down to water the rest of the land and the world okay so I want you to think about that picture that geography thinks in terms of a summit of a mountain with a land around it, and then sort of the rest of the world, including like the waters or the ocean at the edge of it, where the rivers eventually flow. Does that make sense? Okay, now, that sacred geography is repeated at Sinai, okay? So you've got the summit again, Moses ascends up into the summit where God's presence is, there's the elders on the sides of the mountain, down at the base of the mountain are the people, and then out beyond them is the wilderness around them. Does that make sense? So you get the same kind of mountain image. I just want you to get This is really important biblical stuff. You just start working through your Bible, you'll see it all over the place. Okay, here's the thing about the architecture. The Israelite camp is like a little mini version of that geography. So let's just use this room for a minute. The tabernacle, so let's just say for a minute that the tabernacle is like this church. And this church actually is super helpful because we have stairs to signify the change in elevation. Okay, so imagine that back up there, that's where the Ark of the Covenant would be inside the Holy of Holies, at the very top where the altar is. Okay, then you come down to this next little terrace, and at that terrace you're going to have the. Let's say that's the that whole thing is the most holy place. Got that? With the altar back there as the, the throne room, and then that's where the high priest enters. And then there's a curtain, and then now where I'm standing right here is the holy place, and on one side there's going to be a little menorah, right, a, a lampstand, called lampstand. It Looks like a tree, and it represents the tree of life. You see the connection, right? We're back in Eden. We're in a garden. There's that. And on the other side, there's the show bread, the table of the bread of the presence and the altar of incense that's going up right here. That's up here on the table. Now out here where you guys are, we're going to call that the courtyard. Okay? And so now we're out into the courtyard, and at the front of the courtyard, right at the entrance over there, there's going to be a big altar that's always burning with fire. It's the, alt- the, the bronze altar, there's some, a big lava with water in it that's going to be over there so they can clean stuff. But now we're inside the courtyard. If you were to go outside and down the steps, now you're out into the camp of Israel and around the, around the camp, like, it would be like there would be big tents and, or clusters of tents, different tribes, all twelve just kind of encircling this building. Does that make sense? And then beyond that, you have outside the camp, okay? So I just want you to think, that whole structure, like from holy of holies to most holy place to courtyard to camp to outside the camp, is like that mountain, right? It's like a horizontal mountain. Now here, because we're in this this building, it's actually raised, so it works really well. Okay, the Israelite camp then is like a mini cosmos, and as you move in, you move up. As you move in, you move up. You you move from outside the camp, inward and upward, and and then when you're doing that, here's the image again, you're moving closer to the sun. That's where the sun lives, okay? And at each stage along the way, as you move closer to the sun, in order to do that, you have to be more sun-like. You have to be acclimated to the sun, and in fact, what goes on in this little part of it is designed to make sure that out there, the the, the sun doesn't burn you up. It's kind of like a a shield that's happening right here, up here. And then out there, where that altar of uh, burnt offerings is, that's also like a shield so that the sun doesn't burn up what's out there. Does that make sense? And as you move farther up and further in, you've got to be more sun-like in order to be that. Or, here's the Bible word for that, you have to be holy. You have to be holy, and the farther in you get, the holier you have to be, because if you get too far in, you get too close to the sun, and you're not ready, you can't handle that heat, it will burn you up. So at each stage, there's a boundary that has a gate. Metaphorically speaking, sometimes it's not an actual gate, but there would actually be an entrance out there. There would be an entrance to the tent of meeting here, and then there would be a curtain separating the holy place from the most holy place. And at each stage, if you're going to cross that boundary, you'd better be ready. You'd better have been prepared and qualified to handle the heat. So that's place. Now, here we go to things. Uh, we could talk, and we will talk later maybe in the in this series about the different articles, the v- objects that are used in Israel's r- worship. There's clothing, there's vessels, there's bowls and instruments and things like that. But here I want to mainly talk about the things as the animals and their body parts. Okay, as well as the grain. And there's different types of animals, okay? There's a basic distinction between animals of the herd and animals of the flock. That was the very first verse of Leviticus, herds and flocks. Herds, that's cows, oxen, things like that. Flocks, that's sheep and that's goats. And those are different and that difference matters. Okay? Then uh, there's different, it distinguishes the animals based on sex, sometimes a male and a, or a female needs to be used, and age, sometimes a lamb or an adult ram could be used. Okay? So age matters, and this has symbolic meaning. And then beyond that, there are birds that can be used at times, doves or pigeons, and beyond that there are grains and flowers, and, or a flower, like a F-L-O-U-R, not flowers of the field, flower and things like that, and then there are other elements that sometimes get woven in there, like leaven and oil and honey and salt, and all of those have symbols. And some of them, you must not use that, and others, you have to use that. Does that make sense? So there's all of these different elements, and each of them has symbolic value in the language. They mean something. And then you've got the animal itself, the body parts have meaning. Okay, they're dismembered and they're separated into the head of the skin and the head and the fat portions and the fat portions includes like the heart and the kidneys and the lobe of the liver. And then you've got the entrails and the legs and those are different and these parts are frequently burned up and then there's other parts like the skin which the priests get and then the bones and the meat gets put in someplace else. And so there's all these kind of difference of body parts and those also have symbolic meaning and the Levitical system says things matter. People, places, things, that's the basic elements of the nouns. Move now to the adjectives. Here you have to think in terms of like interlocking distinctions. I know this is, this, we're just getting the basics, and you're going to have to go think about this more. Basic distinction, living or dead, life, death, basic distinction in the Levitical system. Here's another one. Life there actually is tied to blood. So oftentimes blood and life are connected, which is weird. We sometimes think blood represents death. In the Levitical system, blood always the life is in the blood. The life is in the blood. And that's part there's symbolic connections there. Another set of distinctions, clean and unclean. And that clean and unclean is actually connected a lot of times to life and death. But not just clean and unclean. Another one is holiness. You could have, and sometimes holiness has kind of two opposites. One opposite is sinful, morally compromised, morally tainted, morally corrupted. That's one contrast with holiness. But there's another one it's simply the opposite of common, and those aren't the same. Ho- unholiness or impurity involves a moral contamination. So this is kind of like, uh, Holiness, or, uh, contaminated here, sinful would be just something that you are. You, you were born into a sinful state. We are a sinful people in a world of death. But in the second case, when it's common, nothing wrong with being common. Common things are good things. They're just not holy things, and so you can imagine. Um, Common things like imagine a bowl. Like if I were to grab one of these bowls and imagine there would be a process that I could do to that bowl in order to consecrate it or sanctify it or set it apart, so that now that common bowl becomes a holy bowl, and now I can use the holy bowl in this place. Whereas if I was if I was going to go back out there, I would have to desanctify it in order to use it out at my house down the road. Does that make sense? So objects can sort of move in, but they got to get sunscreen on them. Okay. So the bowl, through the process of washings, could be moved from common to holy, or it could be desanctified and moved from holy to common. Or think about clothing, the, the, your robe could be consecrated so that it could be worn inside. Here's a really um, simple example, I won't spend a ton of time here, but um, when in, you can read it in Leviticus 6, 9. When they're doing the whole burnt offering, one of the things that's gonna happen in that uh, altar out there is after all the sacrifices, there's gonna be ashes. And they got to do something with the ashes. They got to get rid of them. And so the priest has to put on his holy clothes, go over, get the ashes, and then take them. And before he takes them out, because he's going to take them not just outside into the uh, camp, but beyond the camp, outside the camp, into a clean place, not an unclean place. Unclean places where you go to the bathroom, clean places where they would deposit the ashes. So he's going to take the ashes from the holy place out there. But before he does it, he has to change his clothes because he's wearing holy clothes to get the ashes, and then he's gotta go over and set the ashes down, and he's gotta take off this clothes and put on the other clothes, and he's gotta take him out, and then he's gotta dump him in the clean place, and when he comes back in, he's gotta take off the common clothes and put back on the holy clothes, you get that? So the clothes matter, because there's clothes that belong in here, and there's clothes that belong out there, and you don't mix them. Okay. Why is this important? Okay, I want you to, so you got some of the basics there. Why is it, I wanna stress again, The goal is living in holy God to dwell with His people. They have to be acclimated to the sun. So I want you to think just for a real minute here about acclimation. So just think for a minute about the the difference. Like uh, yesterday or Friday, it was like 48 degrees outside. I want you to think about the difference in Minnesota between 48 degrees in October and 48 degrees in March. Okay? It's different, isn't it? Like, 48, like two days ago, it was 48 degrees, and all y'all were out there in your, like, big puffy jackets, and you had your gloves on, and your hat, and your beanie, okay? We were doing that again, okay? But then, all of a sudden, if it was 48 degrees, exact same temperature, in March, every one of you is going to be in shorts t-shirts, aren't you? Why is that? It's the same temperature? The difference is acclimation. Right now, you are acclimated to heat, to the summer, to the warmth. And so when it gets cold, you're not ready for that. You can't handle the cold. You've got to be acclimated. In the spring, you're acclimated to the cold, and so 48 feels warm. You're acclimated to cold, and therefore you've got to become acclimated to heat. Does that make sense? That's how acclimation works. Here's what Leviticus is doing. As a sinful people in a world of death. We are tempted to become acclimated to sin and death, to regard them as normal. The Levitical system was designed to press against that worldly acclimation, against that felt sense that sin and death are normal. It was designed instead to acclimate Israel to life and to holiness, to the presence of the living and holy God. So, when you move from the cold outside the camp, and you start moving toward the sun at the top of the mountain, you got to put on the right clothes and the right gloves, holy ones. And when you move back down the mountain, away from the sun, you have to take off the holy clothes and put on your common clothes. Because if the common thing comes into contact with the holy thing, it contaminates it. And if the holy thing comes into contact with the common thing, it contaminates it. Holiness can spread, and you don't want to get holy on you. You do not want to get holy on you unless you're ready for holy. You don't want to catch it. All right. Last section here. Verbs. So we got adjectives, clean, unclean, common and holy. Now we got verbs. This is the basics here of the sacrifices. The basic meaning of a sacrifice is a near-bringing. And you just, again, think about the mountain. You're bringing it near. You're trying to come. You want to you get as close to the sun as you can, but you got to come the right way. Because there's an angel with the sword and fire ready to take you out because you can't handle the heat. Okay, so the sacrifices are the way that you're going to get closer. You're going to be brought near. There's five basic kinds in, this, in these chapters. The terms in your Bible, in ESV, are going to be burnt offering, grain offering, peace offering, sin offering, guilt offering. Those are the five terms. Many of the commentators I was using actually think it's helpful to call them by the name of what they do rather than sort of what is offered or or something like that. So here's the names instead, and I think this is helpful. This is really helpful for me about what they're doing. The burnt offering is the ascension offering. Ascension. Ascending to God in smoke. The grain offering is a tribute offering, like you're paying tribute to someone, you're offering them some of your stuff. The peace offering actually works pretty well as peace offering, because you're sharing a meal with God. And then the sin offering is a purification offering, because you've been become impure, either through sinfulness, moral contamination, or touching the wrong stuff, you become contaminated unclean, ritually unclean, and so you need to be purified. And then the last one is the reparations offering. And and that's a little bit different, okay? Now, that's five. Does that make sense? Ascension, tribute, peace, purification, reparations. I know you're not gonna remember all that. You're gonna be able to go read later and hopefully some things will make sense. Here's how this worked. The first three are clustered together in the text. The first three chapters of Leviticus, dealing with those first three, those are like a little package. Those are like the basics of maintenance in the system. That's how the whole thing works on an ongoing basis. The last two are what happens if you break something. The purification and the reparations are if you break something. So think of that a little bit like the difference between health and medicine, or food and medicine. So food is just how you stay alive. You gotta eat your food, gotta eat your veggies, gotta just keep the body going. That's just basic health. But when you get sick with an illness, you need medicine. And the purification offering is for one kind of illness, and the reparations offering is for a different kind of illness. Does that make sense? So you've got medicines and you've got food, okay? I want to start with the medicine first actually, uh, real briefly, all the offerings kind of operate this way. You heard it in what Eric read. There's these basic sort of steps. First, the worshiper brings his animal into the courtyard and lays his hand on it, and then he kills the animal, cutting its throat, the blood is drained out. The blood is then used in various ways, sprinkled in certain places on different things, symbolically representative. Could be on the altar out there, sometimes it's on the altar in here, The Altar of incense, or the table, uh, or the lampstand, and then the priest takes the animal apart, dismembers it, and he arranges certain parts in a certain order on the altar to be burned up out there, and then other parts are taken and burned outside the camp, and other parts are taken and given to the priests, and in some cases parts are eaten either by the priest or the worshipper. So you got that? You lay the hands, kill the animal, sprinkle the blood, arrange the parts, dispense with others and you're done. And all of these are designed, again, what are they doing? They're giving you a covering so that you can handle the heat. All right, start with the medicine. The medicine is that it deals with the fact that we're not just sinful, we are sinning. We commit acts of sin, we become contaminated, we become impure, and so we have to fix that before we can draw near to God. And in the Bible it distinguishes between high-handed sins and what you might call low-handed sins. The basic difference is this, high-handed sins are brazen, defiant, and unrepentant. I did it, and I'm not sorry. And for that kind of sin, there is no sacrifice. Unrepentant sin, nothing you can do. You've got to bear it. Okay, so we'll see more of that Numbers is going to talk about high-handed sins. Every other kind of sin is a sin that you commit, and you might have, in that moment, like a sin of passion, right, or you might have, you know, blown up, you might have lost your temper. But then you realize it. That's the language of Leviticus. You realize your guilt. Oh, I did it. I was wrong. You're convicted, and you're repentant, and it's that sort of sin that can be dealt with on that altar. It's the only kind of sin that can be dealt with on that altar, because it's not ultimately about the animal. It's about the person bringing the animal and what their heart is. Okay, so this is where you get linked up. You've you've been, uh, you've sinned in some way, you bring your animal, and different people need to bring different animals. You're the priest, you got to bring a bull. You're a lay person, you can bring a female goat. Because the female goat is linked with the lay people and the bull is linked with the priest or the congregation as a whole. And so it's like the bigger the animal, kind of like the bigger the more grave the sin. Certain kinds of sins, if if it was a sin of the whole people, like we all got together and did something wrong and then we were like, oh man, we were wrong. Now we got to fix it. We need a goat, we need a bull, we're going to sacrifice it, and then we're going to sprinkle some of the blood there, and then they're going to bring some of the blood all the way up in here, and they're going to sprinkle stuff in here too, because it was a big deal. But if you send by yourself, you're going to sacrifice your female goat right there, and they're only going to sprinkle there, because you're just one person. Does that make sense? So there's different gradations like that of gravity. And the main focus of the purification is on the blood. Blood goes everywhere. Blood gets used a lot in this purification offering. The reparations offering is very similar. I won't go into details. The main difference is you've robbed from God in some way or you've robbed from somebody else. And so not only do you have to sacrifice an animal, you got to pay God back, usually 20%. So there's regulations for that sort of thing. In both cases, both of those offerings are trying to fix a breach in the wall. Like there's breaches, and you've broken it, and now you've got to get out. Now, here's the last thing, core of the system, baseline deal, okay? If you walk away with anything, walk away with this. Three kinds, ascension offering, you are offering your whole self. It's the offering where the, all the parts of the animal, at least all the parts that matter in the symbolic world, the head, so they take, you got the fire, or you've uh, you got the, the altar, There's fire on the altar, there's wood on the fire, then you put the head of the animal, then you put the guts of the animal, so the fat parts, you put that on top and all of it gets burned up and gets turned into smoke. Why do do you burn the whole thing? Because you're surrendering your whole self. All of me, God, here. I can't, you're coming in here. You can't come in here because you can't handle the heat. And so you're saying, Lord, this animal is me. This animal, I'm laying my hands, this animal now represents me. I want to come in and be with you. And God says, I want you to, that's, what I, that's the whole point of this, is I want you to come in here. And so now the animal dies and is raised and ascends to God in the smoke and comes into his presence, and because it comes with that heart of repentance and faith, I'm a sinful person in a world of death, I gotta pass through these gates and I can't come through that angel with the sword. Because you can't do that, I'm coming, Lord, the way you said to come through this animal, and God says, that smells good. I'm pleased with that. So if he's pleased with the aroma, that means he's pleased with the animal. And if he's pleased with the animal, who is the animal? You are. He's pleased with you. So you worship Him their way. Now, last two bits here. That grain offering or a tribute offering, it's always offered with another offering. It's never offered, but it's, the, it's when you bake some cakes or whatever, sometimes you put some oil in it, no, no leaven, gotta have salt, no honey, like all kinds of regulations, symbolic. You could dig into that. It's always offered as sort of like on top of that one. So we got the altar, the fire, the wood, the head of the animal, the guts of the animal. Part. Of, let me just say a little bit about guts. Why guts are so. Why is it lobe of the liver? All this kind of stuff. Do you know um, Israel viewed the seat of the emotions as this part of you? Okay, and you and it's not hard to see why. What happened when you're excited? I got butterflies in my stomach. When you're nervous, I got some, something's going on in my stomach. When you're angry, it kind of wells up from the deep. Like we just. Where do we feel our emotions? We feel them in our stomachs. Okay? And so Israel connected that stomach, and so they said, when we're going to talk about our deep emotions, we're going to take those out of the animal, and that has to get to God. My emotions have to get to God. So you got the fat parts, and then on top of that you would have your, your cake, your unleavened cake with the salt on it. What's that? That's your stuff. That's an offering of your stuff. I've offered myself, now I'm offering a portion of my stuff to you, God, to ascend to you as a kind of tithe or offering. That's what that's doing. But it's always added with something else. It's like if you want a hamburger, and then it's like you want fries with that. Okay? Does that make sense? Like, it's like there's a hamburger, that's the main thing, that's the main course, but like fries with that on top, okay? Now here's where we're going to land. We land here at this table. Why do we land at the table? Because while the basic offering is offering yourself in total surrender to God, and your stuff as sort of an extra tribute to Him, what God is ultimately after, where this all led, was the peace offering when God ate a meal with His people. Parts of it were the same, it was burned up, but then some of that meat was pulled out and it was roasted, and the priest got some, and you got some, and you got to sit in this holy place in this courtyard where you don't belong because you're a sinful person in a world of death. And you're gonna sit here and you're gonna eat with God because God wants this building not just to be his dwelling, it is his dwelling, that's one, ter- that's one word for the tabernacle, it just means dwelling, he dwells there. It's also a meeting place. I want to meet with you, and not just a meeting place, a dining place. I want to eat with you, I want to share a meal with you, I want to invite you to eat, which is what we do every week at this table. Israel's altar was both a mountain and a table. The cloud of smoke from the fire on the altar ascended to heaven and reminded Israel of the cloud of glory that descended in fire on the mountain. But it was also a table where Israel offered herself to God and ate with him. And so at this table, God too invites us to eat with him. And he offers himself to us in the person of Jesus, represented by bread and wine. And it draws our minds back to another mountain, really important mountain. Calvary, Golgotha, the hill of the skull, where Christ offered himself as unblemished lamb, slain for us, raised from the dead, ascended into heaven, pleasing to God on your behalf. And so through him we draw near to the living and the holy God to eat with him in peace. I'm going to invite the pastors to come. We'll distribute the bread first. His body is the true bread. Let us serve you.